Mean O'Lion Media presents the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Kevin Waits again, and I'd like to welcome you to a new episode of Safe Conversations, where we really unpack our bags and we talk about our differences. We talk about culture, race, anything that impacts us all uh, with the hope that we can somehow find a way to move forward together. I always like to remind people that just because it's called Safe Conversations, don't mean we have soft conversations. We really unpack our bags and, and put it out there. And uh, I do want to thank everybody from across the world that's been listening. And I always say, as long as you keep keep listening, me and my guests are going to keep talking. I am extremely, extremely excited to welcome Sarah Shindy uh, to Safe Conversations. Welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. Well, so we'll just jump right in. Uh, Sarah, can you can you tell us, the listening audience, a little bit about yourself, your family, your background, your education, your journey? That's a, that's a loaded story, but I will make mm-hmm. it quick. My family has been in United States since 1991. Um, I was born in Saudi Arabia. Uh, my, my older sister and I were born in Saudi Arabia. My uh, younger sister and younger brother were born in Egypt, and my youngest sister was born here in the U.S. Uh, up until the age of six, I lived and went to school in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Um, I was about six years old when I moved here, and it was definitely a transition. Um, a lot of our Uh, listeners that may have immigrated to other countries, whether by themselves or with families, know a lot of the struggles and challenges and adversities that come with that, especially when you have kids and you're trying to assimilate to the culture and the expectations. But at the same time, you want to, you know, keep your cultural and your uh, religious practices and your norms and whatnot. And, um, Definitely a lot of challenges growing up. I uh, We lived in Cleveland for a year, and then we lived in uh, Summit County ever since. Um, I have always admired law enforcement here in the United States because it was very different where I grew up. I've always, always, always dreamed and fantasized about being a police officer when I was younger. Um, I never thought that I would be good enough because I saw men and women in uniform like superheroes. And I I still do to this day. Um, And I remember having Officer Anderson in sixth grade for my dear officer. And I just remember thinking to myself one day, I want to be like him. And... um, so I went to graduate high school, went to college, and I went to the police academy. And um, I've been a commissioned officer since 2008, and I am still in love today like, uh, like I was day one. Um, I consider myself to be one of the luckiest people that I know because I truly, truly, truly love what I do every single day. And I think that's so scarce in today's world where um, – majority of our population gets up and does the normal nine to five. And um, a lot of people find it very hard to find that kind of fulfillment, uh, but it comes so natural with a profession like police work. That's awesome. Uh, and, and, and you said it so well, um, you know, you were talking and I, you know, I can't begin to imagine what your transition was like, you know, uh, coming from Saudi Arabia and Egypt and coming here. Uh, but I do, it made me think about my transition moving. I was born in Harlem, New York, and I lived there until I was 10. And so, you know, at some point my parents realized, you know what, we got to get these two uh, young kids out of the city and, and we want to we want to move down south where they can really be outside and play and have some freedom in a safer environment. And so they did, they saved up money, we moved. And the transition for me, oh man, I, I honestly, I caught hell. I, I, you know, I was, you know, a lot of times when you move from up north, you bring an accent, right? You, you have a different swag, you may dress a little different. And the craziest thing to me, Sarah, was that the African-American kids in my neighborhood didn't want nothing to do with me because I was different. You know what I'm saying? And that, that 
was a hard pill for me to swallow because, you know, up in New York, I went to Catholic school with everybody, pretty much any nationality you can think of, you know what I'm saying? And everybody got along, you know, and if we didn't, we had some pretty tough nuns to come through, you know, and, and, and make it all, you know, but, it, you know, so can you talk a little bit more about your experience as a young person coming here and some of the, you know, specific challenges you faced? Sure. And, you know, we can talk about this for days and um, the same challenges that you just mentioned with trying to fit in. I don't think yeah. the outside world, uh, law enforcement, the medical mm. world, our school system, I don't think they understand unless you've lived it or have seen it from close proximity. I don't think that they understand the amount of bravery, resiliency, you know, because uh, immigrant parents, they're not worried about their kids like they are, but they're worried about making a living, you know, putting food on the table, doing a whole bunch of things, doing everything to be able to support their family. But they're not necessarily thinking about the challenges that they're going through in school. And I tell myself every single day, like I try to be who I needed when I was younger. That's why I'm so passionate about the younger population. Uh, and when I say younger population, I'm talking about like minors or juveniles in our society, as well as young adults in college. And I tell people all the time that the conversation, so I taught there for six years, I'm a school resource officer. And I tell people all the time, the conversations that I have with sixth graders and eighth graders are the same conversations that I have with 40, 50, 60 year olds on certain calls. Because with both groups of people, they didn't have someone to sit down with them and tell them things like, it's okay to be different. It's okay to have different priorities. And it sounds so cliche and so basic and so normal, but as human beings, like sometimes we need to hear that. We need that validation. So I always see myself gravitating towards the kids that, you know, that do struggle to fit in because even within certain cultures, whether you're talking about like the African-American culture, Arab-American, Hispanic-American, like sometimes you could be the next best thing to slice bread and you're still not going to be good enough for a certain group of people. And it is wrong for us to focus on that at any stage of our life. And um, I just try to be a good role model in sense of, well, I'm 38 now, but obviously when I was younger, I just did not think that I would really ever amount to anything because of where I came from, because of my accent, because my mom wore a scarf or because we practiced a different religion. And I, I always told this to my dear kids, the things that you hide and try to change when you were younger are the things that you're going to pride yourself on the most when you're older. Um, like, like your curly hair, your figure, the color of your skin, like people are paying big money for something that God gave you naturally, you know, or yeah. you being bilingual or your family having such high standards in education. It's like all these things that as kids, because we're so busy trying to fit in and we're so busy trying to, you know, to be the cool kid in school or whatever, we don't sit there and think like, man, I'm from a different country. That's pretty cool. Or, you know, like everybody around me has blue eyes. I love my big brown eyes. And it's because yeah. like, we're so distracted and we just don't have the maturity or the, per the person that we need to sit down with us and just tell us that like, it's okay to be different. This is how you can become comfortable in your own skin. And I know for a fact that then and now and in the future, unfortunately, television, social media, all that stuff doesn't help because you're getting blasted from yeah. one direction with, you know, this is how you're supposed to look. This is what you're supposed to eat. This is what you're supposed to drink. This is how you're supposed to live your life and drive and blah, 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 which is totally not realistic at all and not healthy. And from the other side, you are surrounded by hardworking immigrant parents, other families, different religions, different cultures. And because we lack experience, life experience and maturity at such a young age, we just don't develop appreciation for that stuff at that age. But it comes, it comes as a, for, for the majority of us. I think it's safe to say that it comes at a, at a later age. It does come, um, you know, just like you described, uh, kids are resilient, but fragile 
kind of at the same time, you know, and, and, and I remember when I didn't have any hope, you know, we lived in New York um, in the projects, 14th floor, and the highlight of my day when I came from, from school was whether or not the elevator was working. And guess what? Most days the elevator wasn't working. You know what I'm saying? I had asthma, chronic asthma. Uh, slightest dust would set me off in a, like a violent asthma attack. I, you know, my kids used to laugh at me. I used to tell my kids, you know, before Forrest Gump wore leg braces in the movies, I, I wore leg braces. And, you know, I remember my older brother, when, when the uh, elevator wasn't working, we'd have to walk up 14 flights of steps. And I'm telling you, Sarah, I thought I was going to be homeless and a bum. You know what I'm saying? I just, I didn't think my life was going to amount to anything. So I definitely uh, feel you on that. I do want to pause though. And thank you for your service. You know what I'm saying? And, and thank you for, you know, when you talk, you know, I can see you, the listening audience can't see you, but when you talk about law enforcement, I see the joy and passion in your face. And I know that same feeling, you know, I had a, I had the privilege of serving for 24 and a half years and our career paths were kind of different because I didn't want to be the police, you know, as a kid, I did not dream about being the police. You know, uh, I went to college uh, after my asthma and my, my uh, crooked legs kind of got to the point to where I could manage him. I figured out I was athletic. I went to college and I wanted to be a sports commentator and either work for ESPN or BET, you know, ended up going in the military after college. And when I got out, I needed a job and I landed in law enforcement and discovered the joy of service. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so hands down, I, I really, appreciate what you're doing and I appreciate your service. Thank you. So what challenges, right? What challenges have you faced during your career that you can link to uh, being an Arab American woman or you can link to your religion? So I will say that dealing with people in general is a very unique experience. And from talking to my friends that are in education and in medicine, uh, I'm happy to say that we all are facing the same challenges, and that's when you know you you might face those challenges um, inside your agency, your corporation, or outside when you're dealing with the public. Um, and although we know for a fact all of the benefits that come from having female officers, um, and I, I I try not to make generalization, but we know for a fact that women are better communicators. We're more comfortable being compassionate and empathetic. Um, we do really well in certain roles like their officers, school resource officer, hostage negotiators, uh, detectives, um, you know, uh, survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, regardless if they're male or female, would rather talk to a female. So there is such a place for women in law enforcement that is, it really makes us an invaluable asset and an invaluable tool um, because of our skill set. You know, we're created very differently and we have different strengths and different um, weaknesses. Um, but I would have to say that, you know, I've spoken to a couple of people, maybe a handful. Um, more so on, on encounters, whether it's a traffic stop, a domestic, that think, um, and they may not say it, but I can obviously tell by their body language and how many times I have to ask them to do stuff, that they just don't give me the same respect that they would a male officer. Um, but again, that stereotype exists everywhere because yeah. my friends in medicine have uh, have seen it, and my friends are, are in education have seen it, and you're talking about women that are bilingual, trilingual with master's degree and higher. Um, and you know, my friend just told me a couple months ago that she walked into a room and the, uh, you know, you have like these very old cultural stereotypes and it was a, uh, a, a lady from another country. Um, she spoke very little English and she, she spoke enough English to tell my friend that she wanted a male doctor and that she didn't want to deal with a female. So those stereotypes don't just exist here in America, but they right. is in a lot of other countries. Um, but I will tell you that I have experienced the exact opposite. Um, I've dealt with so many people 
it doesn't matter if our conversation is five or 10 seconds long um, because we're like at a line at Chick-fil-A or Starbucks or if it's on a call or on a follow-up. And it, it, I love it and it's so refreshing. People always tell me, or they ask me rather, um, why are you so different? What about you is so different? And I've heard it from law-abiding citizens that have very limited contact with law enforcement. And I've heard it from people that have spent time in jail and prison for, you know, violent crime. And my thing is, you know, um, being from a law enforcement background, you know, we have to keep officer safety paramount at all times. Um, but I don't ever, ever, ever take anybody's respect or dignity away from them because so many things could be stripped from you as a human being from birth to adulthood. Um, and as we age, but I feel like, you know, if you're not putting my safety in danger or at risk, I'm going to treat you with respect and dignity. And I really try to do everything I can for everybody I meet. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people may say like, oh, that's impossible. You need resources. You need time. It's really not impossible because 99% of the time people just want to feel heard and they want to feel like someone else cares about their problem. Um, so I have said this in so many interviews and articles that I've done that growing up in a Middle Eastern Muslim household has primed me for, uh, to be in a field of public safety and wow. public service in general, and just putting service above self. Because, um, when I was younger, like I remember I used to be so mad and annoyed and upset because my parents, both of my parents have been working since they graduated college and um, very, very, very hard workers. It's where I get my work ethic from. And I used to think it was so silly because my mom would go visit like sick people in the hospital and she would say something like, oh, I'm going to go visit so-and-so today at Cleveland Clinic or in general. And we'd say like, you know, the kids would say like, oh, who's that? And she'd be like, oh, it's so-and-so's like second cousin. And I'm like, you don't know them? She's like, no, I don't know them. I'm like, why are you going to visit someone that you don't know in a hospital? And she said, Islamically, we have a right to visit the sick. We have a, uh, not a right, an obligation to visit the sick. We have an obligation to feed the poor. It is never about you. It is never, ever, ever about you. And it doesn't matter, you know, Islam doesn't have like a set of rules for the wealthy and a set of rules for the poor. They are just basic foundational expectations. So I was raised with compassion, empathy, and um, the need to serve and help others from day one. And I saw my parents doing that, despite the fact that they, that they didn't have money, despite the fact yeah. that they didn't have time, but they made other people a priority. And I think that that's the best and most fulfilling way to live. Yeah. Service is a true service is a beautiful thing. Um, and, you know, you said two words, uh, dignity and respect. And, you know, my mom, I could hear my grandmother saying it back in the day before she passed away. They would say things like, I don't care what so-and-so did. There's still somebody's child. You know what I'm saying? And so that was the thing that always stuck with me. I don't, it didn't matter who I was dealing with. They were still somebody's child. Even if I had to arrest them, and take them to jail. Dignity and respect was always at the forefront. I, you know, I had this guy uh, for a period of time. I worked on an FBI task force, and and we were working a case, and we ended up arresting a gentleman. And you know, he he was he was, I mean, he was visibly upset. He was crying, and he said, you know, somebody asked him what's wrong, and he said, I am supposed to be a preacher. We, you know, we caught him, you know, red handed. But he said, I am supposed to be a preacher and I'm preaching. I'm supposed to be preaching my trial sermon next week. And I could tell, you know, he was caught up in whatever he was caught up in. But he was it hit him that this isn't the life I'm supposed to be living. I'm supposed to be spreading the gospel. And, and you know, and so a couple of my colleagues kind of snickered like eh, whatever. You know, and I actually had to transport this individual to jail. And, and on the way, I said, look, you know, to try to console him. I said, dude, if it's in the plan for you to be a preacher. You can still do it. You can turn this thing around and you can still make that happen. And so Sarah never saw him again. 
Never saw him again. 18 years later, I'm the chief of police at the Georgetown Police Department in South Carolina. I get back to my office and I have a message. Uh, my you know, executive secretary said, hey, chief, you had a call from this gentleman. And I didn't catch the name. So I called him back. Hey, sir, hey, this is Chief Waits, how can I help you? And, uh, and he said, you don't remember me? And I said, no. Um, I said, what community do you live in? He told me the community. I'm starting to kind of warm up. And he said, well, listen, this happened several years ago, almost 20 years ago. I was supposed to be preaching my trial sermon and I got caught up. He said, I went to federal prison for 12 years. I got out. I got my, my wife back. I got my marriage back together. And I'm preaching my trial sermon Saturday. And you told me, he reminded me that I told him, if you ever get it right and you're at that point again where you're about to make it happen, call me. I don't remember telling him that, but he swore up and down that I did. And I, and I probably did. And see, I was holding the phone. He was talking. He couldn't see me, but I was like froze. I was like, you got to be kidding me. And so I didn't commit right then to him that I was going to go, but I committed to myself. I'm going. I'm definitely going. And I think I really wanted to go for me, you know, because, you know, in law enforcement, sometimes sometimes you can get a little cynical if you just constantly, constantly see negative, negative, negative. So I wanted to go because this guy actually gave me hope. So. Saturday, here I go. And he was preaching his trial sermon. And I'm telling you, it was like he had practiced this sermon for 20 years. You know what I'm saying? He nailed it. And all I could do when it was all over is walk up to him and hug him. But didn't expect to talk about that. But when you started talking about dignity and respect it, it automatically made me think about him. And so those are the things that the moments that I cherish, you know what I'm saying? Uh, not you know, plaques or, or ceremonies or things like that. But in, and I know you can attest to it. Little experiences, little big experiences like that is is what always kept me moving forward and and, and kind of, you know, in that posture of service. So thank you again for your service. Um, how do we get people to, in your opinion, to lead with humanity instead of race, instead of culture, uh, the color of our skin? or sexual preference? How do we get people to really realize that we're all human beings, right? And, and if you want to talk specific to race, we're, we're the human race. How, how do we make that happen? I wish that in school, starting from kindergarten, we taught things like emotional intelligence, leadership, compassion, empathy, respect, uh, because you know, kids do spend a lot of time at school, but they spend more time at home. And I'm sure me, you, and every other officer in the country have responded to situations at homes where someone, whether it's the parents, the grandparents, a sibling, um, expect us to solve an issue. And a lot of times we can't because that issue took 17 to 20, 23 years to develop, and we're not going to solve it overnight. Um, I, there, there's so many things that we can do and it's definitely a group effort and it's not the responsibility of law enforcement. Um, I feel that a lot of times we deal with a lot of bad things be, because people think that it's our responsibility to fix everything and it's humanly impossible. By the time we're involved, it's already too late. Um, but I, I just wish that in schools that we did more things to, um, build, confidence in kids to let them know the power of kindness and love. Um, and I always say, you know, two very, very, very powerful things. And I think the most powerful things on the face of the planet are love and hate. Um, because hate can destroy countries and populations. Um, and love can heal countries and love can build Love can build things that hate can never destroy, but we don't teach that at a young age. We don't. And our children and our youth and our teenagers are surrounded by and overwhelmed with unhealthy things. Again, social media, um, the, the violence that we see in movies, in music, 
um, it's it's just everywhere. And you know, if you're surrounded by that as a kid, twenty four seven, and it's in what you see and what you listen to and what you experience in school. And yeah, you have a loving family or like your parents love you and your teacher is encouraging, but everybody else seems to be on the other side. That's really not going to help. But I just wish that our educational system invested more in our kids in a proactive manner. Um, I wish we taught them how to meditate, the importance of breathing, um, why stress is so important, what resiliency is, how to build resiliency. Uh, the importance of having bad days, how you get through bad days. There's so many things. I mean, if you talk to or, you know, attend trainings that's hosted by survivors of suicide, like people in our community that have attempted suicide and, you know, did not succeed with their attempt, they tell you they were so hopeless because they had nobody around them telling them um, that everything was going to be okay or that tomorrow's a new day. Very, very, very basic things that you and I tell ourselves during bad days, they, they don't have that to hear from anybody. So unfortunately, you have kids turning to everything from violence to substance abuse to self-harm, and it's just a very vicious snowball cycle. And um, I just think that if we started at a very young age that our society would be better and healthier and safer and we wouldn't be seeing a lot of the very tragic things that we're seeing today and something that like really 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 bothers me is when i see um, things in the news like tragic incidents that i know could have been prevented um i i hate hearing news about preventable tragedies and preventable deaths and i always ask myself the question like and i'm not blaming but like i'm curious to know where the parents were where was the school system especially kids that you know we have kids that like take their life or um, engage in self-harm behavior because of bullying and we're seeing it in elementary schools and that's not normal that's not okay and uh, that's that's my answer to that question is i wish we worked on basic human foundational elements of love and acceptance at, at a younger age, way, way younger than what we're doing now. Some schools don't even have that stuff in their curriculum. Majority schools don't. Yeah. Um, but just think about how different our society would be if every kindergarten classroom, they learned about the importance of meditation and how to take deep breaths when you're angry and you know how your body feels when you're stressed and what to do with all that. And then you can't talk about that in kindergarten, first grade and be done, but you just follow up with it and build on those foundational uh, tools and skills and assets that you gave them at such a young age. Man, that's incredible what you said. And, 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 and I like it because I go back to my experience in Harlem at Catholic school. And like I told you, we were all there together. Everybody got along. Any nationality you could think of, everybody. And so I think you nailed it. With, with that. Um, in addition to that, I get tired sometimes of hearing people say how lost our kids are, right? Because I, I really believe kids are kids, you know, kids are kids. My great grandmother would say, you know, as the generations move on, the kids are going to be wiser, but weaker. And I kind of believe it. Um, you know, they are wiser in terms of the technology that they have at their fingertips, the access to social media, the fact that news travels from one side of the globe to the other in, in, in seconds. Uh, but they're weaker in some of the areas that you talked about, you know what I'm saying? Not knowing how to cope, you know, not, you know. And so I, I think you're onto something with that. But I do think as well that we need to have more parenting programs to help parents, you know what I'm saying? Deal with modern young people, you know? And I think, uh, you know, I don't, I just, I don't like to hear people talk about how lost our kids are. I think, like you said, it takes a team effort and it takes an entire village to kind of get this, get this train back on the, on the tracks. Can you speak to the relationship uh, that law enforcement has that you believe law enforcement has with the community in Saudi Arabia or Egypt compared to the relationship here in America? 
I like how you said compare to, because I'm going to start off by saying that you can't compare it. Um, it's very, very, very different. I teach a class on um, interacting with the Middle Eastern and Muslim population, and I do have pictures of law enforcement, um, specifically speaking from Egypt. Uh, my uncle was a ranking officer um, with Cairo Egypt Police for a while, for his entire career before he retired. And that's another thing that drew me to this profession, being someone that grew up in the Middle East. And I will tell you that aside from select other few countries, law enforcement around the world is not there for the community. They're there for the government, the president, the, the parliament, whoever's running the country. They're there to protect them, their family, and the country. So that's why I just fell in love with law enforcement in America because, um, you know, we can all do better and there's room for improvement in, in every single one of us as an officer and a, as a department. However, I, I would say that policing in the 21st century has definitely taken a turn for the better uh, when it comes to how we police and putting community oriented policing and you know, trauma-informed policing um, in the forefront. And do we still have to be police officers? Do we still have to enforce the law? Absolutely. But I do believe that a lot of police departments have put getting to know their community and working with their community to solve crime and to prevent crime as a priority. But police everywhere else in the world is very, very, very different. There's almost no comparison. What has been the most challenging day for you during your law enforcement career? And on the flip side, what have been what has been your finest moment to this point? I have had a lot of challenging days. Um, and because I'm such an empathic person, um, I hurt with people. And mm. I think that that's a gift. Like a lot of people have seen that in me and, you know, the right people know that that's a gift. But a lot of people have always said things like, you take your job too personal, you take your job too serious. And I'm like, it's people. You're dealing with people. And I'm going, I, uh, one of my best friends who's a lieutenant at a department here, uh, I, I, I steal this phrase from her. And she said, when we deal with one person, we're not dealing with that person. We're dealing with the whole generation. And that's so true. Because if I impact your life in a positive manner, that's going to have a positive impact on your family and generations to come. If I impact your life in a negative manner, unfortunately, we've seen that happen numerous times around the country. It's going to impact you, your family, your generation, your community, my department, my reputation, and and so on and so forth. Um, so I just, I, I feel with people, and I think that that's what has made me a really good officer. And it's not something that I try to hide. It's not something that I'm ashamed of. Um, I think that um, w one of the police departments here in Ohio, their, their motto that's on their challenge coin um, and I don't want to miss say it, but I think it sounds like um, it's, you know, like there's this whole conversation between guardian warrior and it's like guardian uh, warrior spirit, guardian mindset. Like, and I tell people all the time, I'm, I'm five, three, I'm, uh, I look like a petite female in uniform. Um, God forbid anything happens. I'm going to handle business. You know what I mean? But that's yeah. what I am as a person that that's, that's who I that's where I can go to. But as a person and as an officer, I'm very compassionate and I'm very empathetic. And I want, when I show up to an accident with injuries, that's not Ms. Ms. So-and-so in the car. That's my mom. That's my grandma. Yeah. So that's just how I treat people. And so I have my bad days always end up being good. Vulnerability is so powerful and it gives you inside access to people's lives. Yes. And yeah. in order to be an impactful officer or an impactful person in general, regardless of your profession, you have to be vulnerable. You have to you have to let people inside, you know, when 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 possible and when appropriate. And you have to be able to step in other people's shoes and you have to be able to like you know, like when you talk about your childhood and I talk about my, my childhood, like I was born in a bedroom in an impoverished village in Saudi Arabia that's not even on the map, you know? Wow. So people might see me and they're like, oh, you've never struggled in your life. You don't know. And I'm like, listen, 
like, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I know what you're going through. I know what your family's going through right now. This is how I can help. Like, just let, let me help you. And if I can't help you, here are some resources. So yeah. I, I have definitely had bad days, but my bad days were not as a result of a use of force situation or an injury mm-hmm. or an accident. My bad days was because someone lost a loved one or I had to make a communication or because I know a child currently resides in a home that's full of abuse and neglect and I can't help them. Those are my bad days. My good days, I've had a lot, you know, like the the story that you shared with us earlier about the, the young man that you transported to jail. I mean, I have so many pictures in my phone that are, um, that, that document all of the good days and the good memories that I've had and the, and the people that I met on really bad days and I was able to leave them in, in a better frame of mind and in a better space. And yeah. And, and I just, even out of bad situations, I try to find a win, even if it's not that same exact day, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find a win in that situation. And that's awesome. And, and I'm so glad Sarah that, you know, what your superpower is, you know what it is. It's, it's the fact that you're empathetic for the people. It's the fact that you hurt when the people hurt. That, my friend, is a superpower. Uh, mine, uh, during the course of my career, has been humility. Just like we're talking now, it's how I approach everybody, whether I'm in the street, doesn't matter where I'm at. And I had a friend one time, uh, he says to me, you know what? You're too humble. You're a police chief. You you shouldn't be. You know, he saw it as a weakness. And, you know, I said something that somebody uh, said to me one time, and that was, and I share this with you. I said, you know what? That's easy for you to say. That's easy for you to judge me. But you see what you think is my glory, but you don't know my story. And, and I explained to him my journey. You know what I'm saying? So just like you talked about, hey, I know what it feels like to go to sleep at night and be hungry. I know what it feels like to uh, be teased by other kids because my clothes may not be brand new or they may have seen me uh, wear it multiple times. You know what I'm saying? So thank you and, and, and continue to lean in on your superpower. That's, that's pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. So if you had an opportunity to speak to the United Nations about the law enforcement industry across the globe, what would you say? That is a really good question. Um, I wish that we had more programs. Like if I was chief at a department, I would make a program where the community uh, it's it's like a citizen's police academy, right? So a lot of police departments have citizen police academies. I think that that is transformational, life-altering for people to see a day in the life of a, of a police officer. Now, is that going to solve all of our problems? It's not. But I feel that when people understand what we do and why we do what we do, um, you know, they develop a certain level of respect for the job. Uh, they understand why we need them to be parents and not friends. Uh, they'll understand why police officers sometimes are cynical, uh, why we some officers struggle with substance abuse issues, mental health issues, because we're dealing with um, a whole bunch of situations that, again, could have been prevented had certain things happened in the beginning. And I love the idea of giving people an inside look to who we are outside of uniform and who we have to be in uniform to get the job done and keep our community safe. So I would love um, for a program like that to be more common. Um, In addition to that, I wish that police departments and police officers across the country had like access to all of the training that they need. I think training is so important. Um, I'm very big on training and education, and it's not just the content of the training, but who is delivering the message. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always say people don't believe the message until they believe the messenger. So you can have the latest and greatest training, but if you don't have the right person delivering that message, it's not going to be 
as productive of a conversation. Um, so I'm very careful on not just what are we teaching, but who's teaching. And we definitely need to continue to invest. Ohio is doing a great job because of her and our attorney general. But we, I wish that a lot more states had more money and resources going towards officer mental health and wellness. Um, I take my mental and physical health very seriously. And I always laugh because, you know, I'll complain to my mom and I'll say, like, I don't feel like going to the gym today. And of course, my whole family is like, well, then just don't go. And I'm like, that's not how it works. In order for me to be mentally and physically fit to serve others, I have to be mentally and physically fit, you know. Um, so I think those three things, like giving people an inside look to our job and what we do and why we do what we do. Um, training is extremely important, ongoing training and education, as well as always investing in your officers. And I am really like this has bothered me my whole career. Um, and I don't know how states are, but a lot of times in the state of Ohio, in order to attend like a leadership training or a supervisor training, you have to be a leader or a supervisor in your department. <laughs> like, that's not productive because um, there's a lot of people within our police agencies that lead without rank every day, you know, because they have the credibility, because they practice humility and respect. And what if they're having a hard time getting promoted? And what if there's no movement in a department? You're just going to have that officer stuck there their whole life. If, I, if it was up to me, we would be very heavy on leadership training in the academy and at every stage of that officer's uh, career and profession. Wow, that's awesome. And, and to your point about leadership uh, training for all levels, I think sometimes uh, we stunt the growth of those quiet leaders, you know what I'm saying? Who don't actually have the status or, you know, or maybe they're not in the clique. You know what I'm saying? We stunt their growth and, and do them a disservice. And then sometimes we scratch our heads and wonder why they left. It happens. You know what I mean? So when we first connected, we were kind of chatting and you made the comment, pressure is privilege. And I want you to tell the entire listening audience, the entire world, what you mean by the statement. So I love quotes. I do. And um, when I have a bad day or when something doesn't go my way or when I feel super stressed, I remember that pressure is privilege. And what I mean by that is if you think, OK, every religion has it, um, has the person, whether to you it's Jesus, Prophet Muhammad, whether um, for your family, it's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whether it's Rosa Parks, like every single person in the history of the world, regardless of where we come from, achieved amazing things when they were put under extreme pressure. And things were not easy for them because they didn't have um, like civil rights laws and protection and they didn't have the police on their side and they didn't have money and education and all the resources that we have today in 2023. And um, there is a book out there called Man's Search for Meaning, and it's so amazing. Uh, Victor Frankel is the author, and he talks about his experiences going through uh, the Holocaust. And like I read books like those and my mind is just blown because ultimately, you know, at the end of the day and when we're going through hardship, it's up to us to shape the narrative. Like, is this going to be my end or is this going to be my beginning? Um, and, you know, people talk so much negativity about failures and setbacks. And I love, love, love um, the quote that says, um, uh, a setback is a, is a setup for a greater comeback. You know, like your mind is the biggest and most powerful weapon that you have. And every time I'm under stress or I'm under extreme pressure, of course, like for a couple minutes, I might like freak out and be like, oh, this is like the worst day ever. And then I'm telling you, it lasts less than 60 seconds. And I'm like, I'm so happy that I have these problems. I'm so happy that I have two jobs that I love to worry about. I'm so happy that I'm tackling this challenge with a department that's having issues with recruitment or retention, or, you know, that I'm talking to a teenager that's so stubborn and that's lacking, you know, guidance and a role model in life. You know, am I going to take all those things as a negativity, um, as something super negative and allow them to like bog me down? Or am I going to switch the narrative on every single problem 
that I encounter. And if you think about it, just take out the word problem from your vocabulary and replace it with the word opportunity. Like this is an opportunity for me to do better. This is an opportunity for me to help someone. Um, so yeah, that's what I think about. Like some of the finest things in life, like diamonds, like some of the leaders that we have in our society were built under pressure. And, you know, like the couple of last years that we've had in law enforcement, people like, and this, like one of my biggest pet peeves is when people are like, oh, it must be so hard to be an officer right now. It sucks to be in law enforcement right now. I'm like, this is the best time to be in law enforcement because while everybody else expects me to be like so-and-so and to do A, B, and C, I'm going to show them who I am. I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to turn their tragedy into triumph. I'm going to show them who Sarah is, and I'm going to show their family that not every officer is like the last one that they encountered. So that, that's what I feel that like pressure is not a bad thing. It's We have to feel privileged to be under pressure because the potential outcome of that pressure could be the, the biggest and the best thing that's ever happened to you. Beautifully said. And and I agree, you know, pressure does it brings out the best in us, you know. So, man. I knew you were going to explain what it meant, but I didn't know you was going to break it down like that. I, hey, I will be using that term from here on out. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. So you recently received an international award from the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Can you tell us about that award? Yes, um, it was my career lottery. <laughs> um, it was amazing. So the IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, has a 40 under 40 program where every year they recognize 40 rising leaders um, from around the entire globe. And not only was I privileged enough to be one of the 40 um, that got the award in 2022, um, but I was also the only Arab American uh, female on the list of 40 globally, which is like, I still don't understand it. It's a huge deal. Um, it was so amazing at my, um, my family, at my, uh, my state job were so supportive and so amazing. And I got to go to Texas for the IACP conference, which had thousands and thousands and thousands of officers from around the entire world. So it was so neat seeing officers from like Japan and Korea. And um, I went there with my, I don't wanna call her a coworker because she's like a sister to me, um, Angeli. She's been with me um, at, at our office ever since the office started. And it was such a unique experience that I'm gonna remember for the rest of my life. And um, the highlight of that experience, which the whole experience was a highlight, is I got the, I'm looking at it right now because um, uh, one of the lieutenants at a neighboring department framed it for me, but I got the front page at the Akron Beacon Journal, which is the major newspaper here in Akron. And the reason I love that is because, again, um, I don't remember if I said this earlier in our conversation, but I always tell my mom that the decisions that I make and the things that I do are never just about me, you know? Um, I want people to read that and learn something about Muslim women and learn something about the Middle Eastern culture and look at the diversity in law enforcement and see how women are being supported. Um, there's so many stereotypes out there that every single day I love to bash those stereotypes, you know, because people think that like um, in Islam or in the Middle Eastern region of the world that women are second class citizens. And I'm like, mm -mm, no, that, that is a stereotype. And, you know, look at me and look at my mom and look at our family and just how we operate and, you know, uh, representation matters and it's so powerful. And I want, you know, little girls that look like me that are from very diverse neighborhoods to, to read my story and, and to look at my journey and say, I can do that one day. If she did it, I can do it. Um, so the whole experience was just, I mean, I couldn't stop smiling for months. I couldn't sleep. It was so exciting. Um, because I wanted to take my, my hard work, my culture, my religion, and my family, I wanted to put them in a spotlight and just show people the potential outcome and result of um, persistent hard work, dedication, and also something that I think about almost daily is the importance of having the right leaders and the right role models in your life.
it's extremely important because I know how I was as a person without the leaders and without the role models that I have today. And I have seen how my potential and my dreams have skyrocketed to a whole new level just because of the people that entered my life. Wow, that's awesome. And congratulations again. I I know the award is well-deserved. But Sarah, I got a funny feeling that it's just the beginning. I just got this funny feeling that it is only the beginning for you. Um, Gosh, we've had an amazing time uh, just chopping it up. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Would Would you come back one day? Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Before I close out, is there any one thought you want to leave with the listening audience? Yes, I would really like to tell everybody listening, please be the person that you needed when you were younger. Um, please be that compassionate, non-judgmental listening ear to people around you that need it. Um, please do a lot of self-exploration and work work on yourself as a human being um, because the more compassionate and loving you are to yourself, the more you can offer society and those around you. And um, just remember that love and hate are the two strongest things, the two strongest forces on the face of the planet. And every single day we get to choose which one we're going to pick. All right. Well, thank you, Sarah Shindy, for blessing us. I mean, I just got to call it what it is. I feel I feel blessed. Thank you for coming on. Keep on leaning in on your secret powers. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Gosh, it's, it's awesome when you know what it is. I, and I got to say this. I was talking to a group uh, about a week ago. I walked in and uh, and I got there a little early and they were talking about on a scale of one to 10, where you think you are in your life on your journey. And so I heard people saying, oh, I'm a five because of this, or I'm a four because of this, and I'm a seven. And so I was sitting there and so it was my time to talk. And I said, listen, I'm going to tell y'all straight up. I feel like I'm a 10, not because I've done everything I want to do, not because I'm the person that I'm still working on and I'm not quite where I want to be, but I'm walking in my purpose. I'm walking in my purpose. And because of that, I'm at a 10. So I see you, Sarah Shindy. I'm telling you, I see you. You're walking in your purpose. And just remember, Keep telling your story because people, again, they see your glory or what they think your glory is, but they don't know your story. And your story has power. Your story will change, continue to change lives. So thank you so much for being here. You've listened to another episode of Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits. Gosh, we had an awesome time. Uh, As long as uh, you keep listening, me and my guests are going to keep talking. I'm Kevin Waits, and I'll see you next time. Peace. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Waits. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. Find Kevin Waits on Facebook at Kevin Waits and join the Safe Conversations group. Follow the Mino Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mino Line Media. Get the Mino Line Media app in the App Store or Google Play. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production.